The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from John Keeger on Emmanuel Macron's brand of performative diplomacy, Mary Wakefield on the few pros and many cons of the lady carriage, and Sean Thomas on how learning to work from home opens the door to working in paradise. First up, John Keeger. Why does Macron keep meddling in international crises? Just two months from the presidential elections, Emmanuel Macron's self-belief and risk-taking, not to mention setbacks, seem to know few bounds. And no more so than in foreign affairs. Following the French president's telephone conversation with Vladimir Putin over Ukraine on the 20th of February, the Elysee triumphantly announced that a Biden-Putin summit was agreed in principle, only for the Kremlin to pour cold water on the idea the next morning. Washington then followed suit before Putin announced the recognition of the two breakaway Ukrainian republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. This humiliation comes after Macron's Moscow visit on the 7th of February, which concluded with a live press conference in which Putin gently put down the French president's youthful enthusiasm and suggestion that Russia had agreed to freeze escalation. Macron had hitherto seen himself as the great international power broker. He struck up a strategic dialogue with Putin in 2019, essentially unilaterally, but on behalf of Europe, making many in Brussels uncomfortable. Macron laboured under the impression that he was the Putin whisperer, just as he thought he had been with Donald Trump. We now see what many had suspected for some time, that Putin was playing Macron. The French president's enthusiasm for negotiating directly with Putin may have worsened things by granting him diplomatic cover. Even before the latest military developments, Le Figaro carried an editorial asking whether the politics of appeasement were appropriate with Putin. Macron's Russian failure comes on top of similar vainglorious forays into other international crises. In late 2017, in a bid to improve dismal Franco-Algerian relations, Macron visited Algiers, bestowing concessions galore, but later plunged relations even lower with an off-the-cuff remark that eventually led to Algeria recalling its ambassador. Two years after the visit, his surprise invitation to the Iranian foreign minister to attend the 2019 Biarritz G7 summit to engineer a breakthrough in Iran's nuclear talks was also met with failure. In the same year, his grandiose bid to seduce Putin with a personal tour of Versailles evidently flattered Macron more than Putin. The following year, after the massive explosion that devastated Beirut, he rushed to Lebanon, threatening to knock heads together unless a serious, uncorrupt government was formed, all to no avail. Then there is Mali, Libya, Orcus, 
An uncharitable soul might recall that doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results was Einstein's definition of insanity. So what is behind Macron's obstinacy? Does he have a game plan? Or is this mere attention-seeking from a young French president with an eye on re-election, convinced that the French will be seduced by displays of France in the front rank? As with so much of Macron's thoughts and actions, it is all of the above, a simultaneous coexistence of conflicting positions. Let us begin with the trivial. Macron is the only fifth Republican president to have studied theatre and to have performed on the stage, albeit school plays and coached by his school teacher and future wife. Study the demeanour, though, and posture adopted for the cameras when sitting at that great Putin negotiating table. Macron engages in performative diplomacy, much as the matinee idol is drawn to the theatrical with the thespian pose to suit. Post-Brexit, post-Merkel, with a brain-dead NATO and a disunited EU, he seized the opportunity for a leading role on the international stage. Yet that's only one side to Macron. He set out his diplomatic game plan during a speech in August 2019. It requires, in his words, rethinking the international order via a strategy of audacity and risk-taking. Based on a trilogy of security, sovereignty, influence, his mental map is of geographical concentric circles rippling out from France to EU autonomous sovereignty and on to an Indo-Pacific world crafted by French and EU influence. Macron assigns to France the role of balancing power, which while recognising and respecting its allies, boldly refuses to adopt the stance that, and I quote, the enemies of our friends are necessarily ours, or that we refuse to speak to them. It's an intellectually coherent and detailed blueprint that few contemporary international leaders would dream of drawing up. That Macron thinks he can carry it out is more testimony to his self-belief and the triumph of reason over practicality. This was also de Gaulle's diplomatic strategy, but he had the international stature to implement it which is why, by the end of the 1960s, France had regained much of her international prestige and was able to play a mediating role between the world's two blocs. This might be the grand vision at the heart of Macron's foreign and security policy, but his inability to bring others with him hamstrings his international crusade. Macron's strategy towards Russia is couched in the theoretical rather than the practical. He's taken a leaf from de Gaulle's playbook, itself based on cultivating Franco-Russian relations for geostrategic reasons. France has sought relations with Russia ever since German unification in 1871. Indeed, the 1892 Franco-Russian military alliance was Paris's insurance policy against Germany, henceforth condemned to fight on two fronts. Even in the interwar years, with a resurgent Germany, France sought closer relations with the USSR and attempted the same during the Cold War. This was often at odds with Britain and later Washington. And that's why Macron's courting of Russia elicits cynicism, even charges of appeasement, when viewed from the Anglosphere. At its core, Macron's Russia strategy seeks to reconcile Russia and Europe. Like de Gaulle, he craves a European Europe 
freed from Atlantic influence. Even this is not to the taste of many EU member states. Macron will have been pleased at Germany's sidelining over the Ukraine crisis. It was ever the Gaullist dream that Germany should demur to France. Macron has been milking to the limit France's six-month tenure as President of the European Council, and many member states feel he's using the bloc for French ends, not to say his own. As Macmillan said of de Gaulle, he speaks Europe, but means France. At the same time, there is for some a more cynical and short-term explanation for Macron's cultivation of Putin. Several presidential candidates, from the right's Eric Zemmour and Marine Le Pen, to the left's Jean-Luc Mélenchon, have called for a reset in relations with Russia. Zemmour and Le Pen, who together represent some 30% of voting intentions, see Putin's Russia as a bulwark against political Islam, a defence of Western Judeo-Christian values, issues that appeal to an increasingly right-wing France. All now have egg on their faces. Macron's problem is that while he is intellectually streets ahead of most international leaders, his unbridled self-belief, arrogance and a remarkable inability to retain alliances lead to failed policies at home and abroad. He's taken considerable risk in thinking he alone could control Putin. He announced recently he would not declare his candidacy until Covid was beaten and the Ukraine crisis stabilised. The limit for candidates to declare is the 4th of March, and Ukraine is in a worse state of affairs than ever. The Elysee is incandescent at the humiliation, lashing out at Putin as paranoid. The failure is sure to be worked on by Macron's presidential rivals. His track record as an international power broker could now cost him dear at the ballot box. Macron attempted to answer the Kissinger question. Who do I call if I want to call Europe? The problem is, for all his attempts to say Europe, c'est moi, Macron is viewed as speaking above all for himself. That was John Keeger. Next, it's Mary Wakefield. Sooner or later, somewhere in the UK, we'll have trains with women-only coaches. It's an idea which keeps rolling around. And though the train people complain, it's unworkable and unenforceable, it makes no odds. It's just too seductive an idea for a progressive politician. Jeremy Corbyn was tempted by it back in 2015, and now the Scottish Transport Secretary, one Jenny Gilruth, is considering it. She often feels unsafe on trains, she says, because they're, quote, full of drunk men, unquote, especially the train to Fife, which is her constituency. I just want our railways to be safe places for women to travel, she says. I've nothing against ladies' coaches in principle. In my mind's eye, they look appealing. I imagine them with muted marbling and scent diffusers, full of women with a sort of graded hair effect I've recently discovered is called a balayage. What's alarming isn't the thought of carriages without men, but the assumptions on which the whole argument rests. Neither Gilruth nor the opponents of coaches for women seem to have any doubt that a gaggle of northern men, a few tinnies down, is a danger to women, almost by definition. Reading the arguments for and against over the years, in this newspaper and that, it's as if female politicians and commentators simply assume that the human male becomes less evolved the further north you travel, 
like that classic Darwinian diagram of the stages of man, but ranged along an axis north to south. No one in this great train debate ever looks at the actual stats or the number of arrests of men or complaints. No one questions the guilt of lager-loving man. The only argument ever offered in opposition to women-only coaches is that to have them would be a capitulation to dangerous macho culture. Women shouldn't have to worry, they say. Men should simply learn to behave, and they will. Come the enlightened future, when the vomitous Azuma corners too fast and flings a lady into the lap of a half-cut football fan, he won't laugh or leer, he'll simply smile blandly and avert his eyes. I never thought for a second I'd write in defence of pissed blokes on trains, but I honestly don't think that they make women significantly unsafe, in any normal sense of the word unsafe. I grew up travelling on the North East Line, the Intercity 125, back and forth from London King's Cross to Northumberland, and even on non-match days, the boozed-up men were a given. As a child, I'd goggle at the sea of empty cans. As a teen, I'd glower and blush and try to slide by unnoticed. I felt uncomfortable, for sure, but not unsafe. Gilruth talks earnestly about the, quote, systematic problem of women being scared to use public transport because of men's behaviour. Women certainly are scared of assault and rape, especially after the murder of Sarah Everard. But I don't think a genuine sex pest hangs around in shouty groups near the buffet car, sinking Nuki Brown. He lurks in parks and alleys, or if he's on public transport, he's likely on the tube in a commuter crush. It's a rare woman, I'm afraid, who hasn't had some creep rub up against her on a crowded tube or bus. And the reason they do have women-only carriages in India and Japan is because their train compartments are dense with standing people pressed together. It's just not like the Scotrail train to Fife. And if an actual sexual assault were to happen on the train to Fife, I reckon there'd be police waiting in the station. If it happened on the King's Cross train to Edinburgh, my bet it'd be that bunch of drunken lads who'd rout the pervert out. Unless, of course, he slipped unnoticed into a woman-only coach, quite out of sight of any of the unpalatable male saviour types who might come to a lady's aid. Scott Rail has already said it hasn't the resources to staff any single-sex coach. I wonder if anyone has considered that on less busy routes, a near-empty lady carriage, with just a couple of anxious ladies in it, might be an exciting prospect for a real offender. Much as I enjoy the idea of a lady carriage, it just doesn't make sense. Even if drunk men make you uncomfortable, that's not reason enough to have one. There are a great many uncomfortable things about any busy train. Discomfort is part of the deal. Pre-Covid, the seats were often double booked on the trains I went on, and it's definitely more uncomfortable spending three hours perched in the luggage rack than it is to be heckled by a Magpies fan. And what about other men, the non-macho men? Isn't it just as uncomfortable for a nervous, bookish type of boy to sit it out sweating in a coach full of thugs? The bookish boy is also infinitely more likely to be assaulted. Do nerds need their own coach too? A train is inevitably an uneasy mix of very different people, and I'm not even sure, come to think of it, that it's the lager louts who make me most uneasy. On my train north last week, I sat across the aisle from a businessman called Steve, who conducted a 30-minute meeting with a colleague on his iPhone's loudspeaker. Why, Steve, why? Was it too much to hold the phone to your ear? Because I'm middle-aged now, I found myself grumbling in a low voice, glaring and shaking my head in disbelief. I bet Steve himself would prefer any number of leery blokes to one pale and muttering nag. And then there's the hen knights. 
I don't expect anyone who fantasises about women-only coaches has factored in the hen-like girls. They'll flock to that pink lady's coach, trailing devil tails and feather boas and gin. Is a two-table gaggle of screaming ladies in French maid outfits more or less uncomfortable than a bunch of lads off to the game? I'd say they're pretty evenly matched. That was Mary Wakefield. And finally, Sean Thomas. If I lift my eyes from my laptop, I can stare across my hotel's rooftop infinity pool to the soft, tropical blues of the Lacadive Sea. In a minute, I might order another one of those excellent Sri Lankan crab curries and another chilled lion lager. Meanwhile, the weather app on my phone tells me that London is shivering in a succession of bitter storms as the government ends all Covid restrictions, meaning everyone can go back to catching trains in the freezing fog. I make no apologies for sounding smug. Being a freelance writer, or self-employed freelance anything, has many serious downsides. No sick pay, no holiday pay, no pension, no Christmas office party, plus the queasy horror of the January tax bill. But there are two things which have always combined for me to make it highly tolerable. These are the lack of that commute and the freedom to work anywhere in the world. The first is no small thing. When I'm in my own flat, I commute from my desk to my bed and back again. Many is the time I've woken at 10am and smiled at not having to get up three hours earlier to squeeze onto a crowded train to sit in a boring cubicle. But the second freedom is possibly even more precious. I absolutely loathe the British winter. January and February feel like an unjust jail term in a weirdly dank torture chamber. But then, about 20 years ago, I realised that I simply did not have to endure it. I could skip off somewhere nice and sunny and skip the sleet. I have tended to go to Thailand, but this time I've chosen Sri Lanka, as the Covid faff is minimal and, right now, it's insanely cheap. And I mean cheap. My excellent five-star hotel in Colombo, the Marino Beach, is costing me £57 a night. No, really, 57 quid. It's this cheapness which has got me thinking. As we have all discovered, many office jobs can be done from home. Everyone can work like I do in my flat, where rush hour consists of slowly shuffling to the Nespresso machine. Now, as restrictions end, it is supposed that nearly everyone will return to the office in some form or another, perhaps for three or four days a week. But will they? For a start, lots of companies have shed office space, meaning they don't have room for everyone. What's more, a lot of people would have decided what I figured out about two decades ago, that if their work can be done from a kitchen table... It can surely also be done from a beach in the tropics where gin and tonics cost two pounds. Why linger in your Brooklyn apartment in freezing January when Belize also has great Wi-Fi? Why stay in your frigid semi in Finchley in February when you can set up your Zoom calls under the coconut palms? In other words, multitudes of people can now live the deliciously itinerant life of the digital nomad and they will still get the pension, the sick pay and the rest, damn them. Of course, for many, ties with home will be too strong to allow entire months or seasons away from office life. Kids, pets, gardens, colleagues, relatives and so on will prevent lots of people flying south. But many do not have these pressing ties, and for them, working from paradise will make sense. It might even add up financially. Sri Lanka today is so inexpensive, I've possibly saved money by zipping out to the tropics. And Sri Lanka has benefited too. The Colombo government is desperate for hard currency, with an economy close to default, and its tourist industry is begging for post-Covid visitors. I can feel virtuous even as I slurp sweet Negombo oysters for 50p a pop. 
If I am right and working by the pool becomes as popular as working from home, this has serious implications for big, rich cities with horrible winters. Toronto, Chicago, New York, London, Brussels, Paris, Amsterdam, Hamburg, Berlin, all of them and many more might become seriously depopulated of relatively mobile people from December to March. It won't just be the thriller writers migrating to Kosamui as the wintry darkness closes in, it will be entire neighbourhoods. This will be great for the economies of poor or sunny countries in the tropics, but you have to wonder what it might do to the already fragile business of pret a and so many other enterprises reliant on bustling city centres. I guess I'd better make the most of the empty sunbeds here by the rooftop pool, because soon they might be a whole lot busier. That was Sean Thomas. And that's it for this week. 